1: Well, the World Bank has been much watched. It's a big job, and made vacant recently by Jim Kim, the president who stepped down rather unexpectedly. He's joining a big infrastructure fund here in New York City, Global Infrastructure Partners. But that leaves a big gap, and traditionally, Carol, as you know, the yes. president of the United States, the United States sort of put someone up, nominate someone, and it's always been uh, an American. David Malpass is apparently going to be the nominee from the Trump administration. Well known
0: to our audience. And that
1: only gets us started on this story, because it's an interesting one. Andrew Maeda, Global Trade and Economy reporter joins us on the phone from our D.C. Bureau. So Andrew feels like President Trump following a little bit of his playbook, putting someone up for a job to run a place that maybe he doesn't like so much.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean it's a paradox for our times, right? I mean you've got a World Bank critic, uh, possibly who's gonna be the next head of the World Bank, uh, appointed by a nationalist uh president who says he's not a globalist. Um so You know, we'll have to to see what happens. Um, You know, Paul Wolfowitz, uh, as perhaps you may recall, when he came in as head of the World Bank, um, you know, there were some concerns that, uh, you know, he was hostile to the World Bank's uh, mission of of helping poor countries around the world. Uh, David Malpass uh, has certainly echoed the president's skepticism about globalization. Uh, You know, he said he has said things like multilateralism has gone too far. He's been um a really um, uh, trenchant uh, trade hawk in a lot of ways towards China. So, um, so we'll see. It'll be really interesting. Yeah, I
0: don't know if it's necessarily or exactly the fox in charge of the hen house, but I do wonder about, yes, indeed, a page from the Trump administration's playbook, uh, Andrew, especially when it comes to to China and the pushback against China. And I do wonder about the global repercussions because the World Bank has a lot of different (laughs) players involved. And I do wonder about the reaction from the rest of the world here.
3: Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see. Um, You know, David Malpass has had uh, a lot of criticism for China. Um, He has, you know, he has, for example, criticized them for not moving fast enough on the reforms they promised before they joined the World Trade Organization. Uh, He's been on a negotiating team uh, that's been trying to reach a a lasting truce to the trade war. Uh, And in the context of the World Bank, he's, he's questioned why the World Bank needs to lend so much to China, the world's second largest economy and a country, you know, more than capable enough of of raising money on its own. Um, So we'll have to see how that plays out. Uh, I would add, you know, just briefly that that David Malpass was involved uh, in negotiating a capital increase for the World Bank. Interesting. Uh, They received a boost of $13 billion. Um, Now, that hasn't been passed yet, but uh, David Malpass was the main negotiator on the U.S. side for that. So Mm. he has at least approved. uh, He has at least hastily uh, uh, given the green light to that capital increase.
0: I also do wonder about, like, hey, you're in charge of X, But we want you to make it smaller. And then you get put into the head of X and you're like, I don't want a smaller organization. This is power when it's bigger. Like, do we get some of that going on?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, David Malpass is going to arrive at the World Bank. He's going to have a security detail. Right. Uh, he's going to be in the room at the at the G20. He's going to be driven around uh in uh in black uh, Chevy Suburbans. Um he will be um at one of the centers of power in in Washington. He will also have about 64 billion dollars in in loans annually at his disposal. Um so um Right. right. When people when people take on those types of jobs, um, often uh, the insurgent rhetoric that they use to get those jobs kind of falls by the wayside. So we'll have to see how he he balances that.
1: Yeah. Rick Perry didn't shut down the energy department after saying as a presidential candidate that it should be uh, gotten rid of altogether. And we should point out, you know, David Malpass, obviously a familiar name, a familiar face, candidly, to. People in Wall Street and people in Washington, Uh, Andrew, he is certainly on paper very qualified to do this job, you know, has a deep understanding of of world economics, uh, deep understanding of the United States Treasury. Uh, So that is an important thing to note, it feels like.
3: Yeah, absolutely. He was chief economist at, at Bear Stearns. Um, you know, he was uh, on Wall Street. Uh, he was a me- he was a member of the Reagan administration at, at the Treasury Department. So before he sort of took this turn um, into the orbit of Donald Trump, I mean, a lot of people would have probably classified him as kind of a member of the Republican establishment. Right. So we'll have to see, you know, which David Balpass emerges. Um, you know, he's a free marketeer um that's not actually antithetical to the way that the world bank has approached things for decades um they are in favor of free markets they are in favor of open trade.
1: so andrew just quickly before we let you go a little bit of a curveball where does trade fit uh in the president's state of the union message tonight
3: uh, well, we'll have to see. Um, last year, I don't think that there was a lot of news coming out on the yeah. trade front. Uh, some people were expecting, for example, that he might withdraw from NAFTA. That didn't happen. We're not expecting that tonight. Um, but, you know, he's Donald Trump. And, right. Know, be Maybe,
1: tonight. I guess, potentially making a case for the uh, USMCA, potentially?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But that's what we were expecting last year. Everybody was on high alert right. last year for withdrawal. Uh, I think that the... Uh, You know, it's not DEFCON 5 anymore, but uh, people are not ruling that out. Yeah,
1: interesting. Andrew Maeda, global trade and economy reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from our D.C. bureau about the potential uh, ascension of David Malpass to the World Bank and a look at. The State of the Union ahead.
0: I do feel like when it comes to the Trump team, that you know, it's kind of this, it's come down to it, like a core of people, and you know, he moves it around right. as there's an opening and, and so on. So, well, yeah, and I think the interesting thing with
1: Malpass, we've also learned about President Trump, he likes to cast these roles, right? You know, yeah. I mean, he does, it feels like sometimes he is putting together this team, and Malpass, candidly, he looks the part. You
0: know, I've got to be Yes, indeed. But we're talking about a supersonic jet. I don't know if you remember, but the last flight, um, the Concorde, was back in 2003, so more than 15 years ago. And now it looks like, Jason, we're moving into another era of supersonic jets. Private jet seems to be taking off. Off to our Dallas bureau we go to talk with Thomas Black, industrial and aerospace reporter at Bloomberg News. This is such a cool story. So tell us what's going on
4: we're we probably are going to have a supersonic business yet. Now, it, uh, it, this is really getting serious now that Boeing has entered in the picture and actually has put money into the project. So this uh, – and you can see on uh, Arion's website that they're hiring a bunch of folks. So it looks like there, there's definitely movement toward this really happening.
1: And so one of the most fascinating things to me about this story, Thomas, is – Robert Bass. I mean, you're down there in Texas. Robert Bass is a legendary figure in nearby Fort Worth. You know, he created an investment company that helped birth the entire sort of a big chunk of the private equity industry with TPG, Colony Capital, Avenue. You know, like all these uh, you know amazing people. His family is legendary. What's his What's his skin in the game here? He just likes fast planes.
4: He has a dream to go supersonic. Yeah. And he started this company in the early 2000s, and it was making some headway, and then it, his dreams kind of got put on hold when the uh, financial crisis hit in 2008, 2009. And uh, as the industry has recovered, he's he's slowly been putting this back on the map. He's gone through a, a series of partners, if you remember A few years back, uh, Airbus signed on to the deal, but they they didn't put any money in. They were just going to help bring it along. And then um, that partner was replaced by Lockheed Martin at the end of 2017. And again, they didn't put money into this deal, and that's why I think this is – is is going to be it? This feels it's, real, you're right? Boeing is coming on board, and they're saying we're we got skin in the game, and let's make this thing happen.
0: And it sounds like Boeing wants to have a lot of skin in the game because, right, they're also uh, funding what is it? I think you write in your story a futuristic hypersonic aircraft that's going to travel more than five times the sound of speed. Is this something else that they're 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 working on?
4: That's a parallel project. It's uh, it's something that uh, it's a little bit more futuristic, uh, but certainly they're they're working on that as well but uh... supersonic if you remember this is something that was is is technology from the nineteen seventies, right. right? And certainly we have military jets that fly supersonic, but the the Concorde really started flights in the mid seventies. Yeah. And why Boeing here?
1: I mean, you know what you know, you talked about these parallel projects. Are they kind of looking further around the corner than their rivals? Why do you think they're able or willing to sort of plunk some dough down on this when others, you know, didn't take that step?
4: I think they see the future of aviation as uh, increased speed, mm-hmm. uh, clearly uh, business jets have gotten larger they 've gotten much more comfortable where the cabinet cabin pressure makes you feel like you're you know barely off the ground and reduces fatigue when you fly, but what they haven 't done is gone faster, so that that's the new frontiers to go fast. So they recognize that, and, uh, yeah. and the whole industry is looking at business jets to start, right. but certainly passenger jets are, are down the road.
0: I'm just going to say going fast is really cool, really exciting, but going fast and also being profitable while doing it also works. And wasn't that some of the problems with the Concorde in terms of profitability? I mean, I'm just curious about, is this a profitable avenue for you know, the aerospace industry?
4: Uh, the answer is yes, it has to be profitable. Uh, there was a a couple of big strikes against the Concorde. First was all the the limitations it had on it because it was a very loud airplane and then it had that sonic boom which nobody wanted to be under that and uh, those two things limited where it could fly and then it sucked a lot of fuel. It was an older engine design and it made it very costly to operate. So they're working to, to solve those two problems and uh, NASA is also involved in trying to mitigate the sonic boom through the design of the aircraft, so everybody's trying to work towards solving those problems and, and being able to fly more freely Uh, At speeds faster than uh, than sound,
1: Thomas Black. He is industrial and aerospace reporter for Bloomberg, joining us from our Dallas bureau. Supersonic jet. I can get into it. So
0: wait, a Learjet costs what? Roughly could be what sixty million dollars a private Learjet. So what the heck is this going to cost?
1: Who knows. Who knows? I mean, it's going to cost a lot of money. But let me tell you, someone... But you
0: who, save time, right? So it's much time. more productive. And that's
1: the case that, you know, all of the... I'm being a little facetious. All the, no, but all the tycoons, <laughs> that's what they... That's the case that they make. They're going around collecting money on money on money. And time is money, Carol Masser.
0: I know. I think it's fascinating. I, I see th- you in a supersonic jet someday. <laughs> it's right. We've got to get there quickly.
4: Because it's going to get volatile, honey.
1: So, Carol, we were joking in the break that, you know, a decade ago, Tom Keene, the famous, the notorious Tom Keene would walk yes, around the, the newsroom telling everyone that they had to pay attention to the VIX. Of course, the most reliable or the most watched uh, to this point uh, measure of volatility yeah. in stocks. Uh, our next guest, he's here all the way from Sydney, Australia, making his way to our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. He's got an alternative, it's called the Spikes Index. Simon Ho is the CEO of T3 Index. He's here with us, welcome.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: All right, so tell us about Spikes. What, what, are, we, what are we looking at here?
5: So, um, as, you, as you rightly pointed out, VIX has been the mainstay for volatility trading. In fact, the only stay um, that's been available. And so a few years ago, um, as VIX traders ourselves, um, we thought that there was an opportunity here for us to maybe try and compete in this particular space. You know, if you look around the economy, uh, any other segment of the market where you have just one actor, typically um, you find disruptors coming in. And that's effectively what we're trying to do with spikes.
0: So tell us what exactly is the spikes index and why you think it's maybe better than the VIX, the volatility index. Right.
5: So the spikes is a measure of S&P volatility, but we don't use SPX options, which is the underlying for VIX. We use the um, ETF the spider ETF options. Mm. So we can use those to create an index um, that is very similar to the VIX, frankly, but we are going to um, bring a whole bunch of sort of innovative features. We're going to reduce the cost of trading, which is one of the main bugbears with VIX. Um, And so one one of the reasons you asked why why it was better, we've made some modifications where we can, and we've tried to respond um, to the desires of the the users. So one of the things that we can do is um, we've developed an algorithm, which means that the index is very robust in in uh, fast markets. So what that allows us to do is to disseminate the index at 100 millisecond intervals. Now, the VIX is updated every 15 seconds. So we update 150 times more regularly. So you than can the trade VIX. the heck out of this thing. Well, yeah. <laughs> no, seriously, right? To use a technical yeah. term. well,
0: right. If you're using such small intervals, right, you can well, certainly squeeze well, in a lot more trading there.
5: Well, you can certainly what what the primary benefit of that is that um, investors know with a greater degree of accuracy what's actually happening, mm-hmm. rather than having to wait for longer periods to get that information. Does it
0: make it though extra sensitive though, because you no, can react so often?
5: No, not not at all. Or does actually, does it take
0: some of that sensitivity out potentially?
5: Um, it takes the sensitivity out to markets when they're very fast. So in, in markets that are moving around a lot, oftentimes you'll have offers or bids that are referenced. They, they, they take them away right. because they're worried about being hit at a wrong price. With ours, we preference the last trade price, which means that we have that security where if there isn't a bid and an ask, we can still actually publish the index. Sometimes you can't do that with the VIX. There'll be periods where there's just no price because you need a mid, but without a bid or an offer, you won't have a bid.
1: And remind us, people trade options on, uh, on volatility, essentially. Why? Mm-hmm. What what are they ultimately trading for those who aren't as familiar right. uh, with this
5: trade? Okay, so the VIX is an, an amazing instrument and the SIBO, frankly, they've done a pretty good job of getting it to where it is. It's, it's quite remarkable. It's one of the most liquidly traded uh, contracts in any given day. Right. Why it is so compelling for people to use is because it is what's called causally negatively correlated to equities. Right. So it moves in the opposite direction is basically what that means, but it also does it in a convex fashion. So if the market goes down 2% Vix might go up 6 or 7%. So it's a really really good thing to have in your portfolio if you have a lot of equities. Of course there's with everything there's a downside. The downside is that the cost of the carry of owning Vix is quite expensive. But if you have a good view on do you think that your portfolio is vulnerable, rather than selling all your stocks, you could buy a, a call on spikes.
0: Well, talk fees then. If you say it's going to be a better play here in terms of costs versus VIX or VIX options here, T- talk to us about your expensing and your strategy here.
5: Sure. So um, just to give you some sort of relative measure, the average um, single stock option has a clearing fee of around seven cents. And VIX, there, there are obviously different pricing schemes for different people, but the headline number is 10 times that. So it's very expensive to trade. And so we want to come and disrupt in many areas, but one of them obviously is price. We've spent the last four years talking to VIX users all around the country and around the world, and that's their primary beef. And so we're going to make sure that we respond to what it is they're looking for.
0: Which means what are you going to do in terms of charging?
5: So, to begin with, it's actually going to be um, zero if you're a, a maker of the price and 20 cents if you're a, a payer of the mm-hmm. price. But obviously, we, you know, we can't stay at that level forever because zero doesn't make you much money. Um, right, but right. but we, we will try to, our aim is to be consistently, significantly cheaper.
0: How many people, forgive me, I just want to follow up. How many people do you need to kind of scale up so that it starts to be a worthwhile investment play? Does it matter? How many, you do, right? In order to make yeah, it a liquid yeah, market. So, yeah. so what's kind of the scalable level here? I think we could... And it, how quickly can you get there?
5: Okay, so I think we could easily be you know, 30 40% cheaper and make a good um, profit. Because at the end of the day, this is hugely profitable as it is. And that's because there's no competition. So like anything that faces competition, it tends to uh, contract prices. And
1: who's going to be, who is or who's going to be your typical customer here?
5: Okay, so customers in the volatility space, it's quite interesting given the complexity of this product. uh, I'm sure you already know this, but you know, retail actually plays a very big role. Right. Um, and you know, at the outset, back in 2004, I don't think any punter would have suggested that. Yeah. So um, you get the full range. You know, you've got the big, big behemoths on on one side. You've got the big banks. institutions, exactly. Yeah. And then you have all the way down to retail, which you know they often say that the retail is the tail that wags that dog. So you know, we're we're obviously going to try and, and appeal to the, the same audience, um, but we'll do that through innovative stuff that makes them interested to trade our product and also cheaper prices. And you
1: would get to them through some of the big brokerages or or how would that work?
5: Absolutely. So, um, you know, we're we're trying to form um, relationships with the the brokers, especially the the retail side. Uh, You know, we have already banks. There are at least six of the major banks that are going to be with us on day one. And a number of the very largest um, volatility traders in the world have said that they would like to support our product because we're bringing innovation to the market.
0: Is there that... Inverse correlation, I'm assuming that you see so clearly that when the market's selling off, you see the VIX spike. Is it going to be the same kind of relationship?
5: Well, I like that you used the word Vic Spike there, actually. i <laughs> <laughs> can't even help
1: it. You're already speaking the
4: language, Carol. Well done.
5: Um, so no, yes, that, that relationship is uh, consistent between both because ultimately they're, they're both representations of S&P. Even if you did it on a, an ancillary index, the correlation between those is very high, particularly when markets fall. Right. Um, and for volatility, the correlations are even higher than the indices themselves. So the, the economic function that this serves will be identical.
0: Simon, when do you expect to to start trading this february the 19th okay
5: two weeks and this
1: is a little bit delayed owing to the government shutdown exactly right? yes yeah. it's a, okay. uh just last 30 seconds or so what does volatility look like in 2019 writ large because i feel like we had a spike <laughs> i used it again <laughs> this ta- about this time last year but it's been very muted especially so far in 2019 what do you see
5: That is a very good question. I get asked that a lot. I think that the the start of the year is going to be relatively benign, but I do think that the banana skins are going to be present uh, from the second half of the year.
1: A lot of people slipping around. All right, Simon Ho, Chief Executive Officer of T Three Index. They're the creator I love of the
0: Spike, the Banana Skins. Index.
1: The Banana Skins. There you go. You're going to use that one. I, 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 I feel I it coming. He's based in Sydney, Australia. Here on a bit of a U.S. tour. You were down in Miami because this will be uh, trading exclusively on the Miami International Securities Exchange. We should have mentioned that uh, at the outset. At the outset. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Really, really interesting story for us to keep watching. G-A-M-B, that's my. Dad. Ain't no rules when you win this this game. game All right, so let's get into Electronic Arts, one of our faves. Matthew Canterman here with us. He's Bloomberg Intelligence video game analyst. This guy, you
0: really are one of our favorites. Don't he just else, knows okay? his
1: stuff cold. I love it when he comes in uh, and drops some knowledge on us, including the fact that Electronic Arts apparently, like, speaking of dropping, just like dropped a game last night.
2: Yeah, Amazing. Out of the blue. tell us about that. So uh, they, they said they were going to release a new game from the studio, Respawn, at some point in the year. We all thought it was going to be the end of the year. Sunday, Saturday, Sunday, there's leaks about it. Monday, they say they're going to stream on Twitch. Monday afternoon, it happens. Monday night, the game's out. What happened? It's just awesome. I mean, no, none of the nonsense with all the marketing gimmicks, none of the ability. I mean, there's a... There's kind of like a you know a storyline that goes on in the gaming industry that gaming media hates games. So there's no time for the gaming media to trash the game. Right. And just, just let players experience it for the first time and create their own opinions. And if they like it, they'll play it. And if they don't, they don't. Cut
1: out the middleman. Get right to the people.
2: Yeah. Did you like it? It's fun. I mean, it's kind of like a little bit of Fortnite, a little bit of Overwatch. What's it called? It's called Apex Legends. It's based in the Titanfall universe. So EA acquired a studio called Respawn. Uh, About two years ago, they had always published Respawn's games, um, but now then they acquired it, and with that was the Titanfall franchise, and so this is based within the Titanfall franchise.
1: And as you say, it has some elements familiar to Fortnite fans. What's all that about? Why would they do that? I mean, it seems sort of obvious because Fortnite is such a juggernaut, but, you know imitation sincerest form of flattery but doesn't always work in you know media and video games right
2: i mean it it, it does in in this case right a lot of people are jumping on this battle royale bandwagon yeah. fortnite included they were not the first to, to do this PUBG even was before them and they copied someone else h1z1 was the first to, to come out with this game mode so um you don't have to be first to do it best i like to say that you know apple didn't make the first smartphone right palm did palm's right, yeah. dead now and apple's Got hundreds of billions of dollars.
1: Yeah, remember the the Razer phone.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. Wait, wait. But so Fortnite had a record 2.4 billion of revenue in 2018. I'm just reading some analyst research. I mean, that is phenomenal, right? Is that kind of what everybody aspires to?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's not sustainable long term, right? I mean, because
0: well, what is what is like? How long do you keep up that kind of momentum? Um, Is it a year?
2: Yeah, a year or two at most. There's always going to be something new and something different. Um, And so it's so hard to call. I mean, just think about all these massive, successful franchises. It's so hard to sustain that momentum forever. What's going to happen is you're going to keep your, your core base of hardcore users, your whales, if you will, that are spending the most money, but the casual players are going to move on to the next shiny toy. Right. And they always will. And, and and that's just the nature of the industry. But you can make a very solid, profitable business off that core group of users. So
1: one of the things, storyline and, and sort of the, the setup and the narrative is one thing. But the business model, essentially, for this game is similar to Fortnite as well. Free to play and the money comes from essentially cosmetic items payments, right? people
2: yeah. paying for those dance moves in the game right. you know which would you know like the floss That's what you
0: educated me yes. about this the yes floss.
2: yeah so please, please don't
1: ever try. They have the boss, this <laughs> so
2: I fortnite has this floss. payment method called battle packs and in this game apex legends will have it too and basically for every season which is you know 10 weeks or so yeah you pay for this battle pack and you get that season's worth of cosmetic items all included It's going to be the same methodology, and there's also microtransactions involved also. So
0: tell me a little bit about revenue growth and earnings growth and the earnings uh, report that we're going to get after the closing bell. Because I'm looking at, I don't know, was it for the most recent year, about 1.6% year-over-year revenue growth uh, and earnings? Yeah, so so this
2: FY19, which ends in March, is going to be a down – is not a good year for EA. Almost flat, it looks like. Battlefield 5 was kind of a flop. So we're looking past this to FY20 at this point. Which is the next year. Six and a
0: half percent revenue growth according to our projections. Yeah, but the
2: bottom line is going to be a lot bigger. They're going to get some operating leverage on the expense side, and then they're going to have share buybacks helping to drive down the share count. So EPS should grow low double digits.
0: So what do you want to know on the call today, or what do you want to see?
2: We want to know what else is in the pipeline for FY20, and there's that live services line, Mm -hmm. that, that high margin recurring revenue. When does that inflect higher? Because if you look at the multiples of these stocks, it's completely tied to live services growth rates. And so we need to see that live services segment. What uh, is live services? That's all the in-game items okay, and it. also the downloadable content and subscriptions is all inside of that.
1: And what else is grabbing your attention in the broader video game world? Only about forty-five seconds left.
2: Uh, people keep talking about streaming, which is you know. It's still years away from being real. We're going to see services launch next year. So the ability to play games out of the cloud, just like you would with Netflix, I'm still not convinced that people want to play games out of the cloud. Right. And it's a solution without, without a problem. Because latency. Latency is, <sighs> is the issue, right? Whenever you're playing a shooter game, it's 99% of the time the fault is lag and 1% of the time it's your fault. You're a right. worse player. And imagine now you're playing that out of the cloud. It just, it, it, the experience is not there yet.
1: So is that a problem, ultimately, that 5G
2: solves? 5G is a part of it. Just continued fiber build-outs. The, the the advance of low-latency, high-speed broadband networks.
0: You go home and you have to unwind. What's the game you play?
2: I'm going to play Apex Legends.
0: Ah.
2: There we go. And as
1: you pointed out, this is some serious Fortnite knowledge. What? You're ninja. Uh, it's the most popular game on Twitch. Ninja is streaming himself uh, playing it. you got to think that that's a big coup, uh, presumably for electronic Arts. He like he knows cards. what
0: he's talking about.
1: He just talks to the right guy? I exactly. know. Exactly. I know. This guy has taught me everything I need to know. He makes me very popular. No, I know he knows. You just
0: sounded like you knew what you were talking about. I know, about. because
1: I just mimic everything he says. <laughs> it's a trade secret.
0: Matthew Kennerman, thank you so much. Always love talking with you. He's our Bloomberg Intelligence video game analyst. I'm in my car.
3: is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
0: It is time for the drive to the close. Right now we've got equity averages. They're just off uh, their best levels of the session, so we're seeing gains across the board. Mark Hepenstall is Chief Investment Officer at Penn Mutual Asset Management. $25 billion in assets under management. Uh, Mark joining us from Philadelphia. Mark, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. So we've gotten through the Fed meeting, we've gotten through a jobs report, we've gotten through a little more than half of our corporate earnings. Where are we in this market cycle?
6: Well, I think the fourth quarter was um, really an indication that, uh, to me, the big driver of what has happened, uh, first the sell-off in the fourth quarter and and the rapid rebound since it To me, it all uh, begins and ends with the Federal Reserve. And I think uh, clearly the more hawkish language in early October um, spooked a lot of investors and really started uh, the snowball rolling downhill for um, equity and credit markets. And once it started to roll, it seemed as though it was only the Fed that was going to be able to come to the rescue. And uh, thankfully, after uh, maybe a disappointing uh, performance at the December FOMC meeting, you know clearly the the tune has changed dramatically and we That sounds really funny. Yeah, it almost sounds result. like an
0: orchestra and it's like yeah they didn't play so well. I yeah, mean
1: they were off. The band was off that night. Now they're tight.
0: Right. Like I mean was it I mean that Jay Powell do, do you well, blame him that, for I not being He's
6: learning on the job honestly and I yeah. think that if you listen to um you know Fed Chair Bernanke and Fed Chair Yellen they both admitted to mistakes during their first um year as Fed chairs and so i think, in some ways, he's learning on the job. Um, you know, I will say it did seem as though, even though there were parts of the December um, press conference that you could argue uh, maybe should have been more satisfactory to the market, it seems as though uh investors took a took a negative spin on just about every every aspect of what he said. but you know what that is um but you can't deny that the tune has changed a lot, and yeah. that um you know he's helped to uh, he's helped the markets rebound.
1: And so, Mark, let, let's stick with that for a second because you know I, I appreciate the fact that that you're giving us some historic historical perspective. I believe, uh, if if my notes are right, that you yourself studied history, Vanderbilt. You're a commodore, uh, so you understand. And and we we have an interesting story. I won't give too much of it away. Uh, Uh, in the magazine this week. We taped uh, an interview about it earlier today, Carol and myself did, uh, with Gina Smilik. And and part of what it talks about is soft landings are tough. You know, soft landings are really tough for a Fed chair to manage. You really have to go all the way back to Greenspan in the the mid-90s. What does this Fed chair, Jay Powell, have to do next to ensure, to at least make it possible that we see a soft landing here?
6: Well, you know, I think that the first thing is to um, look at um, what's going on in the markets. And even though you can argue that, you know, the equity market shouldn't necessarily drive um, Fed policy, um, clearly there were other indicators going on, uh, namely the yield curve, which has been in a significant flattening trend. And yeah. if you look at the historical relationship between the yield curve slope, yield curve inversions, and eventual economic slowdowns, um, it's about as good a leading indicator for economic growth as there is. So, you know, that to me should have been flashing orange for uh, the Federal Reserve even before um, equities started to experience weakness during the fourth quarter. So, that's one. And also, you know, we did see start to see um, tightening credit conditions. And, you know, we're involved in the credit markets on a daily basis. And, you know, some of the challenges within uh, the liquidity environment for credit uh, came to the fore in November and December. Um, And some of that I think was as banks and brokers were trying to uh, shield themselves from any volatility coming into their year ends. But um, clearly there was a time when uh, liquidity was quite challenging in November and December.
0: Where's money flowing? Uh, And how much new money are you guys seeing coming in? Or how much money is still kind of on hold waiting to see if there's a longer trend line in this uh, financial market environment?
6: Well, you know, part of the assets that we run in in fixed income are insurance assets, and to the extent that you know, we can help uh, provide the liquidity in an environment where liquidity is evaporating elsewhere. You know, and we are focused primarily in the in the credit markets. Right. You know, we identified some terrific opportunities for both our insurance um, investors and also um, our total return strategy. So, you know, the type of environment that we saw in November and December um, really opened up some opportunities in high quality fixed income assets, um, as long as you had, I would say, a longer term perspective than you know, just a few weeks or a month. So what worries you the most about this uh,
1: market now, Mark?
6: Well, I think the focus this year is probably going to shift somewhat away from the Federal Reserve. I do think the Fed uh, basically said that they're on hold for at least six months, and, you know, our estimate is that they're going to be on the hold for... Um, the balance of the year, but I think the you know the bigger challenges are going to reside um, in the eurozone and the ECB, which has been um, already implementing incredible quantitative quantitative easing measures, negative interest rate policies, and now they face um, you know a German economy that has been one of the bright spots in the eurozone is now uh, weakening and teetering on recession. So you know there there's some signs of trouble and you know the. ECB, which promised to do uh, whatever it takes, now I think is um, going to face more and more challenges to do something um, in response to what's happening to the economy abroad.
0: What do you see as the biggest risk to uh, the credit markets and and in kind of pursuing that investment strategy right now?
6: Well, there are a number of factors that we look at in in the world of credit, but I will say the you know the correlation with um, what's going on in credit and I would say equities um, broadly as well. Um, to the price of oil has been remarkable. And, you know, the oil price is something that when it goes down is positive for the U.S. consumer, but uh, clearly there's a lot of um, high-yield credit that is tied to the, to the price of oil. And when oil traded down so significantly in the fourth quarter, um, we saw some significant weakness um, in the high-yield credit markets, and that spilled over into the investment-grade credit markets as well. And, you know, the rebound since then um, has accompanied a rebound in credit a company to rebound in the equity market. So that's one area that we're keeping a close eye on.
1: Mark Eppenstahl is Chief Investment Officer for Penn Mutual Asset Management, overseeing about $25 billion down there in Motown, Philly. Mark, always good to catch up with you. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.